But it's a real joy to get to talk about Toyotas in church history with you this morning. Um, I was going to focus on the Supra and the Celica, but I guess uh, we're talking about forerunners today. Uh, obviously not talking about Toyotas. They don't enter church history until the 20th century. Uh, we're talking about things that happened obviously much sooner than that as we think about the history of the church. Uh, just a couple of things before we get going, and I'm so grateful to Brian to invite me to get to spend time with you over the subsequent and upcoming weeks. Uh, this entire series is a 14-week series, and we're planning to do about half of those lessons this fall, and then maybe, Lord willing, the other half in the spring. I'm hoping, in fact, I was joking with some of the guys earlier that I don't empty the steadfast fellowship group as a result of talking about church history. But if I do, I recommend Cornerstone. It's right above you. So in any case, no, but it's really great to be with you all this morning. Thank you so much. Uh, One thing I do want to just mention is that there is a website, forerunnersofthefaith.com, and you can pull it up on even your mobile device if you want. And these lecture slides, in fact, all of the lecture slides that we'll be going through in this series are there on that website. All you do is go to the website, you click on the lessons. This is the slides for lesson one. So I just want you to know that you have the PowerPoint already, or at least access to it. Uh, The other thing is that if you decide to get the workbook and go through it, There are some places where you can fill in some blanks, and in the PowerPoint, there will be words that are underlined. That's because they correspond to the blank that you can fill in in the workbook, okay? So if you see that on the PowerPoint and you go, I wonder why he underlined that phrase. Is that particularly important? Well, it may be, but it's probably more likely that it just corresponds to a blank space in the workbook. You don't have to get the workbook in order to come and participate in the series as we go through this. But obviously, if you want to do that, it's a resource that you have access to, or at least will have access to once the bookstore gets a few more of them. Okay, I wanted to start this morning actually by talking about why I think a study in the history of the church is so important. So church history begins on the day of Pentecost, probably in or around the year A.D. 30. And then it extends, and that's recorded in Acts chapter 2, it extends all the way to the present and continues past us into the future until the rapture. Okay, so from Pentecost to the rapture is the church age. Ten days before Pentecost, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. And he gave final instructions to his apostles, and he told them to go and to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And ten days after that, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God came upon the 120 who were gathered in the upper room, and they began to speak in other languages. We call that the gift of tongues. Peter preached an epic sermon. 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ, and the church was born. And that's the beginning of church history. 
I like to tell my students, and uh, Juan, thank you for mentioning historical theology. You don't get extra credit, but I do appreciate it. I like to tell my students that church history is important enough that the Holy Spirit inspired a book of church history and put it in your Bibles, and that is the book of Acts. So the original church history was Luke recording the first 30 to 35 years of the history of the church from the day of Pentecost up through Paul's first Roman imprisonment, and that's what the book of Acts is all about, and we'll talk about that more a little bit later. But why should you care about church history? Why should Christians care about what has happened in the history of the church over the last 2,000 years? In the introduction that's in that workbook, you can also find the slides for this on the website, I give, I think, eight reasons, maybe even 10 reasons. I've done different versions of that list through the years, but eight to 10 reasons why I think the study of church history is so important. I'm just going to give you a few this morning, really just three, but before I give those three reasons, I think it's important to understand that church history is not so much about the history part of it, right? If you had a high school history class or a junior college history class that was super boring and you hated it, you're probably hearing, ugh, 14 weeks of church history. Maybe I will go check out a different fellowship group. Don't do that. Your name is Steadfast. <laughs> Stay here. But this isn't so much about the history. This is about the church. And we love the history of the things that we love. If you love baseball, you love baseball history. If you love Toyotas, you're interested in Toyota history. If you love your family, you're interested in your family tree. It's because we love the history of the things that we love. And if you love the church, then I'm convinced that you will love the history of the church. So think of this more about a study about what God has been doing through the church over the last 2,000 years. It's not so much a history class. History is like dates and timelines and boring stuff. But the history of the church is awesome because God is awesome and he does remarkable things through his people as he advances his gospel and protects the truth of his word. So if you love the church, I'm convinced you'll love this class in spite of perhaps my ability or inability to communicate it in a compelling way, but I'll do my best. Okay, so I have three reasons today why I think you should care about church history, and then we'll get into our specific PowerPoint for this morning. And these three reasons are a simple A, B, and C, okay? A, B, C. The A is for apologetics. I think that every Christian should know about what happened in church history for the purpose of being able to defend the faith using the language that Christians have used to defend the faith for the last 20 centuries. So it's about apologetics. Now listen, in this class, we'll be very, very clear that the Word of God, the Bible, is authoritative and sufficient. It is all that you need for life and godliness. You don't need to know about church history in order to be a Christian or in order to know what the truth of the gospel is. All of that is found in the scriptures. 
However, when it comes to understanding where error arose, where false teaching came from, where the cults and apostate movements have come from, and why they deviated from true biblical Christianity and how Christians at that time responded to that deviation and that distortion of truth, you need to know a little bit about church history. Understanding a little bit about church history, for example, helps you have the language to be able to talk about why the Jehovah's Witnesses in their denial of the Trinity is wrong. It helps you understand where Islam came from. It helps you understand when the Roman Catholic Church became the Roman Catholic Church in an apostate sense, where Eastern Orthodoxy comes from, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, all of these isms and schisms, church history explains that. And so when you know a little bit of that context and you look at how believers in the past defended the faith against those errors, it helps you on that Saturday morning when you're sitting in your living room and the doorbell rings and two guys are standing on your porch and they look like seminary students, but they're holding bike helmets. So you know they're not seminary students. Okay, so apologetics. And I find that when people think about church history through the lens of apologetics, they get really energized about it. Then secondly, B is biography. Church history is filled with amazing stories about how God's people served him faithfully and God worked in extraordinary ways through them and sometimes in spite of them. We see this biblical principle, of course, in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, we call it, where you have all of the Old Testament saints, the heroes of the Old Testament listed And then in chapter 12, the author of Hebrews continues by saying that because we have or since we have this great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, we also can follow in their footsteps by running the race with endurance and setting aside the sin that so easily entangles us. I think we can take that principle and extend it into New Testament history and into church history. And when we study the courage and the consistency the faithfulness of some of these men and women who loved the Lord Jesus and were willing to die for the Lord Jesus, it gives us motivation to also run the race with endurance. Now, one thing we're not going to do is we're not going to put people on a pedestal. This isn't about hero worship. In fact, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 continues by saying in verse 2 that we are to fix our eyes on who? Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. So as we run the race with endurance, looking at those who have come before us, we ultimately look past them and we look to the one to whom they also looked, the Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage my seminary students that when they graduate and they enter into pastoral ministry, I'm not under the illusion that church history is really gonna be their favorite thing to do. In fact, it shouldn't be. Their favorite thing to do should be to study the Bible but I encourage them to include in their annual reading rotation at least one Christian biography. Christian biography is church history well told. It's interesting church history. And that's one of the things I love about the study of this is we get to meet so many fascinating and faithful saints 
with whom we will spend eternity as we surround the throne and sing praise to the Lamb. That's really neat. And then C, A, apologetics, B, biography. C is really connections, the connections that, that satisfy curiosity. So you could go with either of those C's. But I find church history answers so many really interesting questions. Questions about like where all the denominations came from. Questions about why, I mean, this isn't a question you've probably ever had, but why is the date of Easter so messed up? Do you know church history answers that question? That's my little cliffhanger, as as if that's going to be reason enough to come back and listen to when we talk about the Council of Nicaea, but that's when it happened. But it is so interesting to go, oh, that's why they do this or that or say this or that. And so filling in the blanks in your mind, I find to be really helpful. When I graduated from college and came to seminary, I knew very little about church history, to be honest. And I had an interest in history generally, but church history was something that, as I discovered it, I really came to love. But when I came to seminary and sat in my first church history class, my understanding of the history of the church was very minimal. And you may be beyond where I was, but this was more or less my understanding of the history of the church. You had the New Testament, the apostolic age. The last surviving apostle was the apostle John, and he died around the year 100. I probably would have said he died on Patmos, but most historians believe he died in Ephesus, which is probably more accurate. But in any case, around the year 100, the apostle John died. And then my understanding of church history went dark really fast. I didn't know how or why, but I assumed that almost immediately the church fell off a doctrinal cliff into Roman Catholicism and stayed in that state for the next 1,400 years. I would have called that the Dark Ages. Someone named Augustine or Augustine, somebody named Aquinas, yeah, they lived sometime in that 1,400-year period, but it was a rough go for three-quarters of the history of the church. Then, around the year 1500, a guy in Germany named Martin Luther put something on a door somewhere and rescued the church in what we call the Reformation. That was it. That was my understanding of church history. So I'm going to tell you at the outset, and for the sake of the recording, that's a very inaccurate and incomplete understanding of the history of the church. And if that's where you are, then I'm excited to get to go through not only those first 1,500 years, but the last 500 years. And for what what for me was like the Dark Ages, really the Dark Ages is the 9th through 11th century, but I'm excited to get to go with you and turn on the light. What is so fun for me about getting to teach this material is that I feel like I'm getting to introduce believers to people they've never met before but people who share the same convictions that you and I share. People with whom, as I said earlier, we will spend eternity together with in heaven. Okay, so apologetics, biography, and the connections that satisfy curiosity. All right, with that as a little bit of an introduction, I want to talk this morning about the biblical framework for 
church history, biblical framework. And I'm hoping to give you a structure in which to organize the history of the church in your own thinking. Now, if, you, if this doesn't work for you, that's totally fine. If, you're, if you prefer really long timelines that start at one point and end 2,000 years later with a bunch of dates on them, that's, that's great. But I have found this to be personally effective, and I hope it will be effective for you as well as we talk about this particular framework. Now, in Scripture, in the New Testament in particular, we find that the New Testament often refers to the church using the metaphor of a building. And I believe that we can apply that metaphor to church history. And so we have a foundation, and that foundation is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostolic witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is the person of Christ and the testimony to Christ that we find in the scriptures. And so you you see places like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says that there is no other foundation that can be laid other than Jesus Christ. He says something similar in Ephesians chapter 2, that the church is built on the foundation of of the apostles and prophets, that's a reference to their testimony and witness to Christ, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then you have Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, who says, "...and coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house." So you see this metaphor in the New Testament of the church as a building. Just a quick footnote here. I think it's important for me to say this at this point. I may say it again later. I do reserve the right to repeat myself. Actually, I should probably just share this. This last summer, two and a half months ago, my oldest daughter got married, which means that I am now in potential grandfather, like, status, like that's a reality that may or may not happen in the next few years. So I'm just preparing myself for embracing being a grandpa by already forgetting things, repeating myself, (laughs) telling the same dad jokes over and over. It's been great. So I just, I want, I feel like that's probably a helpful clarification at the outset. But you've heard Roman Catholics make the claim that Peter is the rock on which the church is built. That's from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think it's helpful, and we could go into more detail later if you want all the reasons why Peter is not the rock. In fact, in that text, I say to you that you are Peter, that's Petros, a small stone, but upon this Petra, Feminine, can't refer to the masculine Peter. <laughs> uh, feminine noun, Petra, referred to bedrock. It's, he's talking about the confession that, that Peter had made two verses earlier. Matthew 16, 16, who do you say that I am? Peter says, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the truth on which the church is built. Verse 17, earth did not reveal this to you, 
But my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you, and I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, the truth of what you just said, I will build my church. But the reason I mention it here is because even Peter knew he wasn't the rock on which the church is built. You can see it in this text. The the rock on which the church is built is Christ. We are all small stones built upon the cornerstone. Sorry to reference my fellowship group again. To which we cling steadfastly. Uh, But we are all... We are all small stones built upon the foundation stone, and that foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So the foundation of church history is the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in Matthew chapter 7, here Jesus says, if you build your life on my word, then you will be able to stand in the storm of God's judgment. Okay. In addition to a foundation, we have some doctrinal pillars. Now, these pillars, it's important to understand this because these pillars define the boundaries of biblical orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means that which is true. It literally means true worship, but we generally apply it to true or sound doctrine. And so when we talk about orthodoxy, lowercase o, we're not talking about Eastern orthodoxy. We're talking about that which is true and sound and biblical. And these would be what we would call the fundamental or foundational or essential truths of the Christian faith. These are the truths that have defined true believers throughout all of church history, starting in the New Testament. What are those foundational pillars? Well, the first would be a right view of the authority of Scripture, so the supremacy of of the word of God. True believers rightly understand that scripture is their final authority. It is the ultimate arbiter, the final judge, and the inspired and perfect rule for what we believe and how we live. Then a second pillar is a right understanding of salvation, a right understanding of the gospel, a right understanding of the work of God. If you get the gospel wrong, You are outside of the boundaries of biblical Christian orthodoxy. And then number three, a right view of the Savior, a right view of God himself, a right view of worship. If you don't understand accurately who God is, then you are worshiping the wrong God. And what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to talk through these three pillars, and I want to show you from the New Testament why these pillars are not just the boundary markers of historic orthodoxy, but the boundary markers of biblical orthodoxy. Because again, Scripture is our final authority and our absolute rule, not church history. We always subject church history to the teaching of Scripture. We always evaluate church history through the lens of the Word of God. So let's talk just a little bit about these three doctrinal pillars starting with the supremacy of the Word of God in Scripture. So the church submits to the Word of God as the final authority. And again, this is very, very important as we think about even certain apostate movements. An apostate movement is a movement in which the the truth once existed, but... Over time, because of the elevation of tradition above 
the word of God, that truth becomes distorted and eventually eclipsed. So for example, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy represent apostate movements. Judaism is an apostate movement, a movement in which the truth once existed, but the traditions of men clouded out the truth of the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, a reminder of the fact that the word of God is inspired and inerrant and sufficient for all that we need to serve faithfully. In Mark chapter 7, you have Jesus confronting the Pharisees because the Pharisees were upset that the disciples had not washed their hands before eating. Now, when you first hear that, for those of you who are hygienically inclined, you think, well, I'm kind of with the Pharisees on this one. But that wasn't, it wasn't about germs. It was about rabbinic tradition, and the Pharisees were insisting on a ceremonial hand-washing before eating, and Jesus used that opportunity to say, you've taken an unbiblical man-made tradition, and you've elevated it above the Word of God. And in fact, he quotes from Isaiah where Isaiah said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And then Mark goes on, Jesus was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as these. I would argue that the conversation Jesus had with the Pharisees in Mark 7 applies very much to what was happening in the Reformation period of the 16th century when the Reformers essentially said to the Roman Catholic Church, you've done the exact same thing. You have elevated extra-biblical and unbiblical tradition to a place where it eclipses the truth of the Word of God. And true Christians don't do that. They subject tradition and history to the authority of Scripture, not the other way around. Now, there always arises a question at this point, well, what about those places in the New Testament where it uses the word tradition? It talks about the tradition of the apostles. Is that some sort of reference to things like purgatory and... Uh, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, and the fact that we should say our confession to a priest or those kinds of things. Well, obviously not, but let me explain just a little bit. How do we respond to that? Just a few thoughts here. The word tradition means that which is given over or that which is handed down. Apostolic tradition refers to apostolic instruction given to the church either by word of mouth or by letter. That's from 2 Thessalonians 2.15. It does not include elaborate customs or practices that developed in later centuries. And one of the things that's helpful about studying church history is you can see where those unbiblical and extra-biblical traditions began to arise. And they're all post-New Testament. And that's a clue that this is not something that is binding on Christians. Number two, apostolic tradition or instruction is preserved for us in the writing of the New Testament. We don't have to wonder what the apostolic tradition was because we have the New Testament that explains the apostolic tradition. It is what was written down in the scriptures. 
Number three, believers are called to evaluate teachings and traditions in light of God's word. This is just a good principle, generally speaking. Anytime anybody comes to you and says, I have some sort of life principle, life philosophy, spiritual lesson, teaching for you, you always take that and evaluate it through the lens of the truth of God's word. Uh, that's what Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, examine or test everything carefully. And you do that by comparing it to what is found in the scriptures. I think, of course, of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. They were more noble because they searched the scriptures to see, even if the things Paul was telling them, does this really accord with what is in the scripture, the Old Testament that we already have? And of course, Paul commends them for that, as does Luke here in Acts 17. So we need to be Bereans. And then fourthly, here in this response to what do we do with the idea of the word tradition showing up in the New Testament, I think it's helpful to realize that the early church viewed the writings of the apostles as authoritative, and they recognized that the apostolic era was unique and that it did not continue after the apostle John. You don't have any church leaders, well, at least not until the 20th century with the rise of the charismatic movement, you don't have any church leaders in church history calling themselves apostles. The apostles were a unique set of individuals appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ who had seen the risen Christ with their own eyes, and they had unique authority because they were deputized by Jesus in the upper room. In John 14 and John 16, he says, I'm going to give you through the Spirit revelation for the church. So just a couple of church history quotes. These are from people that you probably have never heard of before, but you'll hear a little bit more about them later. Irenaeus of Lyon, he talks about the fact that we have learned from others the plan of our salvation, that from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed over to us in the scriptures. That English word handed over is actually from the word tradition to be the ground and pillar of our faith. So here you have an early church father. He lived at the end of the second century, died in the year 202. And he's saying the ground and pillar of our faith is the apostolic word of God. In other words, the New Testament, the word of God, that which we received from the apostles, which was written down in the scriptures. Uh, I won't read this one from Basil of Caesarea, but <clears throat> this is just an interesting um, episode in church history. In the fourth century, you have a big debate between those who believe that Jesus is God and those who deny that Jesus is God. It was sort of like true believers versus an early version of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they were known as the Arians because their leader was a guy named Arius. But what's interesting is that Basil, who was, I'm going to use a very simplistic classification, but this worked with my kids when they were little. He was one of the good guys. Uh, Basil, who was one of the good guys, I remember my daughter when she was my 15-year-old daughter now, well, probably 10 years ago, she was like five years old. She's watching a seminary graduation. She sees all the guys walking down in their long, dark robes with their pointy hats. And she looks at my mom, at my wife, her mom, 
and says, are those the good guys or the bad guys? <laughs> those are the good guys. Those are the good guys. Um, so he's one of the good guys, and he's talking about the fact that the Arians have traditions or customs, and the Trinitarians have traditions or customs. And the question is, whose traditions are we going to go with? So notice this on the next slide. And uh, this wasn't a fill-in-the-blank. This one's actually underlined because it's important. Basil says, if they reject our traditions and we reject their traditions, we are clearly not bound to follow their traditions. Therefore, let God-inspired Scripture decide between us and on whichever side be found doctrines in harmony with the Word of God in favor of that side will be cast the vote of truth. So here you are all the way in the 4th century, and they're having a massive theological debate. And to what court do they appeal in order to determine what to believe and how to live? The answer is the Word of God. So I find stuff like that really compelling because, again, if we were to have a big doctrinal debate, where would we look? The Word of God. Okay, enough about tradition. Let's move on to our second pillar, the sufficiency of the work of God in salvation. Not only, not only does the true church recognize and submit to the ultimate authority of Scripture, the true church also understands the gospel. And you can see this in many places throughout the New Testament, that those who add to the gospel of grace, right? The gospel of grace is the good news that sinners can be justified, they can be forgiven, which is to have their sins, the debt of sin removed, and they can be justified, which is to be declared righteous. And all of that is given to them as a gift, not on the basis of their works, but a gift which they receive by embracing the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And even that faith is a gift according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. However, throughout church history, there have been many who have attempted to distort this by saying, well, you have to do more than just depend on the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith in order to be saved. And in fact, this goes all the way back to uh, the early church. Luke 18 is the Pharisee and the publican, the parable that Jesus tells. The Pharisee thought he was accepted by God because he was so pious. The publican was the one who was actually justified because he cried out for mercy and confessed his sin. Uh, in Acts chapter 15, uh, there was a council in the early, early church. We call it the Jerusalem Council, probably around the year AD 50 or so. And the issue at that council was, are you saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, or do you have to add circumcision and the works of the law of Moses in order to be saved? You can read about that in Acts chapter 15. Shortly after that council, Paul wrote this to the Galatians, and he's like, look, if you do something to mess with the gospel, you are, he says, accursed. You are outside the boundaries of orthodoxy. 
In Acts 13, on Paul's first missionary journey, verses 38 and 39, he preached a gospel in which he said, you can be forgiven and justified through faith in Christ. And then, as I mentioned, in Acts 15, false teachers came and said that was an insufficient gospel. Then for the rest of Paul's ministry, the Jerusalem Council, by the way, affirmed Paul's gospel as the true gospel. They affirmed that sinners are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. The rest of Paul's ministry is marked by him emphasizing that truth. So Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Now I have to pause here for just a moment and I have to tell you a really cool story that relates to this text. I, I think I've shared this story before, maybe in the main pulpit. So if it sounds familiar or redundant, please forgive me, but it's such a cool story that I just have to tell you. Three years ago, I didn't even know about this story until three years ago, I was surfing my news, web, it was a news website, but kind of like a news app, and just looking at the headlines. And one of the headlines had to do with church history, which to me blew me away. It was the fact that there were some letters from a pastor that were being auctioned. And I thought, okay, that's really interesting. So let me tell you about this pastor. The year was 1912. It was April 15th of 1912, which when you hear April 15th, you think tax day, but Congress hadn't made that tax day in 1912. Something else happened on April 15th, 1912. That was the day that the Titanic sank. Now, I had never known this until three years ago that there was a pastor on the Titanic, which is so incredible to think about I mean, imagine if you were on a luxury cruise liner that started to sink, what would you do? Well, this guy, his name was John Harper. He was on the Titanic. He was from Scotland. He was on the Titanic, coming actually to Chicago to preach in Moody Church. And he was there traveling with his sister and his, I believe she was six years old, his six-year-old daughter. His wife had died a number of years earlier. Immediately, when they found out that the Titanic was sinking. He took his sister and his daughter to the lifeboat. And then, instead of getting on the lifeboat with them, he turned back and he spent the remaining hours of his life preaching to anyone who would listen and begging them to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith. And his text was Acts 16, 30 to 31. Acts 16, 30, Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Answer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. At one point, he was having a conversation with a guy who was just so hard-hearted he didn't want to listen. Harper took off his life vest, gave it to the guy and said, you're going to need this more than I do. Even after the ship went under the water, Harper was swimming from piece of wreckage to piece of wreckage, still begging people to give their lives to Christ. A few years after the Titanic disaster, there was a meeting in Canada of Titanic survivors, a reunion. And there was a man there who said he had been clinging to one of those pieces of wreckage floating in the ocean when Harper swam up to him and begged him to give his life to Christ. And at first he said he was resistant, but as he heard the pleas of this pastor begging him, God did a work in that man's heart. And he told that group of Titanic survivors, I was the last convert of John Harper. 
and Harper was seen swimming away, never to be seen again, probably, almost certainly, going to his death, but in that moment entering eternity and hearing the Lord Jesus say to him, well done. I mean, I put you on that boat so that there would be people in heaven who were on the Titanic and like criminals on the cross heard the gospel right before they entered eternity. See what I mean? Biography is awesome. Okay. <laughs> Love that story. I'll probably forget I told you and I'll tell you again. So just, just act interested again. They're like, yeah, yeah, John Harper, we get it. We heard this. Uh, all throughout Romans, it's the same repeated refrain. We're saved by grace apart from works. We're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. It's all because of what he accomplished on the cross. We contribute nothing. He did everything. And you can see this throughout the rest of Paul's writings. I love Romans 11.6 because it's such a clear rebuttal of the Roman Catholic perversion of the gospel. If salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You cannot add your own self-effort to the gospel of grace and still retain grace. Grace gets diluted, destroyed, distorted. It disappears when you add your own works to what grace accomplishes. And uh, Philippians 3, 8, and 9, we need a righteousness not of our own, one that God provides. Titus 3, we're saved by grace and not by works. All right, our third pillar, the sanctity of the worship of God. So the true church is defined by a submission to the supremacy of the word of God. It's defined by a right understanding of the sufficiency of the work of God in salvation. And thirdly, it's defined by a protection of pure worship, the sanctity of the worship of God. And I mean this in two different ways. When we talk about a right view of worship or right view of the Savior, we're talking about purity of devotion and purity of doctrine. And what I mean by that, and I get that from John chapter 4, where Jesus at the well there in Samaria meets the woman, the woman at the well, and he tells her that those who are true worshipers worship the Father in spirit, that's devotion, and in truth, that's doctrine, because it's not the Holy Spirit, it's human spirit there in that context. So those who are true worshipers worship God with a purity of devotion and a purity of doctrine. So when we say purity of devotion, what we mean is that undefiled worship is reserved for God alone. This worship removes any distractions and it rejects any competitors. Those references there, Exodus 20 verse 4 is to the second commandment. You're not supposed to set up any competitor to the worship of the true God. Isaiah 42, 8, we worship God alone. I love this example from 2 Kings Verse uh, chapter 18, verse 4, when Hezekiah uh, reclaimed the worship in the temple, this was during one of the revivals that took place in Judah, he actually had to destroy a relic. So it's so interesting, right? We usually think of idols as somebody took a tree and carved a, an image in it. But what about relics? What about things that were actually good things at one time, but they take on a bad meaning when they are elevated to a 
level of worship or devotion that distracts people from the undefiled focus on worshiping God alone. So you remember all the way back in the book of Numbers, there was that incident where God sent fiery serpents and they were killing all the people and the people cried out and Moses interceded and God said, create a bronze snake and put it on a stick and anyone who looks to the bronze serpent will be healed. And it was a, actually a, a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus. Jesus actually refers to that in reference to his crucifixion. Well, that bronze serpent, it remained with the people all the way till the days of Hezekiah. And in the days of Hezekiah, it had to be destroyed because even though it was originally something good, it had become an object of distraction and false worship. I mean, if that doesn't parallel what has happened in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, I mean, it's just such a compelling parallel. Uh, another, you see that reference in the New Testament to avoid idolatry as well in passages like 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Thessalonians 1 and so on. Another really interesting text, <clears throat> and uh, we can get into this a little bit more later, but uh, I'm going to give you just a, a really quick Greek lesson. There are a couple of words for worship in the Greek language one is latruo, which means to worship, and one is proskenuo, which means to bow down before. And in the 8th century, there was a debate that took place. It involved both Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism because there wasn't a distinction between the two at the time. And 8th, 9th century. And the, the, the confusion was whether or not you could venerate something without crossing the line into idolatry. So if you talk to a Roman Catholic today, they'll say, well, we don't worship all those images and statues and saints and stuff. We just venerate them. And you're like, hmm, kind of looks like you're worshiping them. I mean, when you're bowing down before them and praying to them and kissing them and lighting candles for them and all that stuff, that kind of looks like worship. And they're like, no, no, that's just veneration. Um, yeah, I'm going to call foul on that one. But that goes back to an argument that was made in the 8th century where a theologian named John of Damascus, made the claim that latruo is worship, but proskenuo is veneration. Okay? If you're still tracking with me, this relates to this passage because in this passage in Revelation, the apostle John worships an angel, and the angel says, don't do that. Worship God alone. Okay, why is that relevant? Because the word for worship used both times in this text is not latruo, it is proskenuo. So the angel says, don't venerate me, venerate God alone. This is a great text to use with Roman Catholics in showing them why their system of veneration is a form of idolatry and false worship. Okay, purity of doctrine. Undefiled worship requires an accurate view of who God is. To reject the truth about who God is, as he has revealed himself in his word, is to worship the wrong God. I have a number of texts here from 1 John because I want to make this point with reference to the second member of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. What you have in 1 John is repeated, 1 John chapter 2, you see it in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. 2 John chapter, or verse 7, there's only one chapter in 2 John, 2 John 7, you have this repeated refrain, a warning 
about a group of false teachers. And what was it that defined those false teachers? It was that they denied that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. They denied the humanity of Jesus. You say, well, why is that important? Well, it's important because if you deny the humanity of Jesus, then that means that Jesus didn't actually die. He didn't actually live a perfect life as a man, and he can't actually be the perfect mediator between God and man because he was never actually human. He didn't take on human flesh. That's why it's so important. But the point I want to make is that John shows us that if you have a wrong view of Jesus, even something like the humanity of Christ, if you deny that, you are, he says, of the spirit of Antichrist. Now, if we take that same idea to John's gospel, we see in John 1.1, you have to affirm the deity of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You have to affirm the humanity of Christ, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and you have to affirm the exclusivity of him as the Messiah. Verse 17, grace and truth were realized through Jesus the Messiah. And those kinds of fundamental Christological truths have defined the true church from the beginning. Okay, so our doctrinal pillars were that True Christians, the true church, submits to the word of God as its final authority, understands that the work of God in Christ for salvation was entirely his work. It's of grace through faith in him alone. And they have an understanding of who he is that's accurate, and they worship him in spirit, purity of devotion, and truth, purity of doctrine. All right, let me land the plane. Uh, 2 Timothy 1 is a verse where I find all three of those pillars in the same text. That's why that was there. If we go back to what probably looks more like a hamburger than a building and put our three pillars in, now we have a structure for thinking about church history. We can divide church history, and it's actually not that arbitrary. We can divide church history into four quadrants. But if we keep the idea of a building, we can think of these as four floors on this building. There's the patristic age. That's the age of the church fathers, like patriarch, the church fathers. And we'll talk more about them next week. And then we have the early Middle Ages, the high and late Middle Ages, and then the modern age, which is the post-Reformation period. Each of these is roughly 500 years in length, and you can actually divide each of these floors into the centuries that comprise them. So the first floor is centuries one through five, second floor six through 10, and so on. And what we're going to do, and I find this to be a really helpful way to organize 2,000 years of information, we're going to go room by room, floor by floor, and we're going to meet the people who are in that room and find out what they did. So room one was the apostles, room two, the early church fathers, and so on. And by the time we get to the end, you will be much more familiar with some of these amazing people. But again, it's not so much about them. It's about the amazing God that they served and how their lives function as a testimony to him.